He is good. And what we need today is not a good sermon and not good music. What we need is an encounter with the good God. Speak to us, reveal truth to us. And I want you to know something. We gather here every Wednesday at noon to pray over this place, and we pray for you. Because here's the truth, is, is the band can't play good enough, and I can't preach good enough to change anyone and transforms anyone's life. We've got to have God. And so we, you have been prayed for that God would move in your heart today. Is that okay? Our hope is that we would leave different than when we came in. Amen? You can be seated. Well, welcome. We are starting a new series on a book of the Bible. And before we dive right in, I want to give you some context on how on, behind this book. And so I want to tell you about a man named Saul. And some of you, this is review, but Saul is, is a zealous religious Pharisee. He's hungry to make a mark and passionate about purifying the temple from this upstart movement known as the way. You and I know the way as Christianity, but this was in its infancy. First generation believers, and they didn't have a name, it was just called the way. And the book of Acts says that Saul, this person we're talking about, was spewing out murderous threats against the way. And he was actually present when the whole crowd stoned a man named Stephen because he believed in Jesus. And inspired by that, Saul goes to the high priest and says, hey, can you give me some official documents to go around and root out these people of the way and bring them back for torture and stoning? And he gets his papers. And with his bounties, he leaves Jerusalem authorized to go terrorize the followers of Jesus. And there on the road to Damascus, it says a bright light shone down and he fell to, to the ground and a voice spoke to him. He didn't recognize it. And so he said, who are you? And the voice responded, I am Jesus, the one that you persecute. Now get up, we have work to do. This passionate, zealous, proud man was brought to his knees, humbled and broken. And when he got up and the light dimmed, he was unable to see. He was blinded and led to a town. Three days later, his sight returned, and he was in the company of the people of the way, of the Jesus followers. And Saul was struck so deeply by what he'd experienced that he clung on to this new faith as passionately as he had tried to persecute it previously. He followed it, and soon he began to preach it. Now, we know this man named Saul as Paul, who wrote most of this New Testament, and he also wrote the book that we're going to be studying here soon. And he traveled all over the country, preaching and teaching and healing and seeing many people give their life to Jesus. And his travels at one point led him to the city of Ephesus, the capital of Asia Minor. It's a, it's a booming city, and he was there for over three years. There was nothing booming more in Ephesus than the worship of the goddess Artemis. In fact, the temple of Artemis, we have a picture of it there in Ephesus, was one of the seven ancient wonders of of the world. And that's a, that's a real picture of it. It's amazing. Our creative team comes up with these things. It was huge. It was over 350 feet by 180 feet, and the entire city revolved around it. It was a profit center for almost everyone there in the city. And Paul began to preach there in that town, a town consumed by this goddess. And listen to what happened. It said, many of those who believed came out and confessed a number who had been practicing sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. 
In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, one drachma is a day's wage, so 50,000 days' wages. In one night, 136 years of wages worth of pagan scrolls and spells were voluntarily given up for the sake of the true way. Now, as often happens, this doesn't go over well with people who resist. The followers of Artemis, or actually the people who profited off the goddess Artemis, they did not like this. And in fact, the silversmith, his name is Demetrius, he gathered up some people, the ones who made the idols, and they were very upset because their cash flow was drying up. The idol makers and followers of Artemis were losing their money, losing their influence, because people were leaving for the way and the simple message of love God and love people. And so they they began to pick it. And they began to shout and began to march. And the march grew and swelled and consumed the city. And and they grabbed Paul's companions and a riot broke out. And they had his companions there and there was just chaos. And Paul wanted to run in and, and, and speak or save his friends. But the elders and disciples held him back knowing that if he went in there, he would be next and he would be killed. Paul moved on. But he had invested much of his heart and much of his time there in the city of Ephesus. And many years later, There's Paul. He's in prison, chained to a wall, and he begins to write a letter to the church he spent so much time with. Now, I'm sure as Paul wrote the letter we're going to look at today, I'm sure he, as he wrote it, he he thought of the faces of the people there in Ephesus, and he smiled as he got to some of it. He was caught up in what the Holy Spirit was leading him to write, and one thing for sure, Paul has a deep affection for the people of Ephesus. He'd stood shoulder to shoulder with them through, through good times. He had, he had been there for weddings and parties, and he had wept with them at funerals and, and hardships and even been there in the riots. And now we start this letter that he writes to Ephesus. It starts off with a typical greeting, traditional of those times, where you put your name first so they know who's writing it instead of at the end. So he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to turn to page 814, 814 in your worship center Bible, you can read up here or follow along. If you do use a Bible, grab a pen because there's some things you will be circling. Or even in your app, you can begin highlighting. I'm going to show you some things. After this greeting, Paul dives into the deep end of a letter that has called many people to deeper faith. You see, the book of Ephesians that we're starting today is, is not light. It has true mysteries of God and reveals the purposes of God in a beautiful way. It it tells us about the nature of God. And then it tells us how we're to live in light of who he is. You see, it calls the people of Ephesus and it calls you and I to stand up and speak out boldly for God in a culture that loves to worship anything it can get its hands on. It challenges them and us now to follow God through all things, through joyful days, through hard difficulties, through persecution, and and through possible pandemics, that we would root ourselves deeply into Jesus, that no matter what comes our way, that is not shaken. And so here he is speaking. And so with that said, we dive into the next verse. Now, I'm going to talk fast, because that's who I am. I'm excited, and there's a lot to get to. So, with that said, let's all try to keep up. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Now, right here in the heavenly realms, what this means is the things that exist in heaven. 
Things that take place in heaven up there, may they be happening down here. With every spiritual blessing in Christ, every. Do you know what the Greek word for every means? I looked it up, and it means every. It means all, each one of them, every spiritual blessing. And then it says this, it finishes this, in Christ. Now, if you have an app or a Bible, highlight or circle in Christ. It's okay to write in your Bible. In Christ, you are blessed with these spiritual blessings in Jesus. Now, this is important. It's in Jesus. It's not apart from Jesus. It's not outside of Jesus. It's not because you kind of like Jesus. It's not because you think Jesus was just a good teacher. It's not because you want to check Jesus out. These promises, these spiritual blessings in heaven are given to us in Jesus. So it reads, praise God, the Father of Jesus Christ, who blessed us in heavenly ways with each and every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Next verse, for he chose us. He chose you. He, he picked us out. He chose us in him. Now, in him, who's, who's the him? It's Jesus. Circle that one. He chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That we were chosen in Christ before the earth was even made. And that you were chosen to be holy, a saint, and blameless without fault. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, the first two words that are in love, and the word for love that they use here is the word agape, which is that unconditional, huge, big love, that love that doesn't change based on someone's behavior. It's that love that's never earned and you can't earn your way out of it. That in unconditional love, he predestined, that God decided beforehand he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ in accordance with his will and pleasure. Adoption. Now, adoption is a covenant that comes with full rights. If you've ever been a part of an adoption, it is a beautiful thing. As someone is adopted and there's no asterisks next to their name, it's like, they're not, it's like they're not part of the family fully. They have full rights in the family. Romans 8.15 talks about this adoption. It says, The spirit you have received from God brought about your adoption to be God's child. And because of that, we can cry out, Abba, which means Daddy. We cry out, Daddy, because we have been adopted. Now, marriage and adoption were created to be binding contracts. And there's a war against marriage, but you know what? The bottom line was what God has brought together, let no person separate. That it was a contract, that it was a covenant that was deep. And in most, most, case, most cases, when you join in a marriage covenant, what was yours individually is now collectively yours. What was, what was yours is now your spouse's as well. You know, when Amy and I got married, it became clear that we were very different. And, and, and one of the differences is I like to collect and hold on to things. And Amy likes to do what they call purge things, which just means throw stuff away or sell it. And so I would collect things that I thought were very important to me. And so when, when we got married, all the stuff that I was collecting, that was mine Guess whose else it was? And guess who really didn't like all that was mine? You see, as a single man, I, I loved collecting t-shirts. And, and I didn't just collect t-shirts. I mean, there were t-shirts from decades ago, a concert I was at or a camp or something. I just liked this one. And over the years, I'd wear it, and it would get worn kind of thin, maybe some holes. But, but it's, that, it's my t-shirt. I remember, I remember that concert. I remember, oh, I remember the people I did that. Oh, I love that one. 
And, and here's the deal. They were well-used and well-loved, and it didn't matter that I didn't wear them much, right, or at all. They were each special to me. And then I got married, and all that was mine was hers, including my T-shirts. And I, she, she didn't appreciate my T-shirts. And if I don't wear something in my house, it just disappears. <laughs> I go, where did my T-shirt go? She goes, I, don't, I haven't seen it for a while. I don't and I'm not, I don't know where things are anyway, so I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I, if I haven't worn a shirt for a while, both I and the shirt get nervous because we know it's only a matter of time. So I do something strategic. I wear it. I make sure she sees me wear it. And so if we're ever out and you ever see me and I'm wearing like some like 1984 Newsboys concert or like, you know, summer camp 2001, like don't, don't look at it too much. Just look at me. Give me a little nod. Like we know what's going on. I'm making sure this thing's going to survive for one more month. I can wear it, take it off without it falling apart, and then put it back up there. And it's safe for like 30 more days. Now, when you get married in most cases, what is one person's is now legally the other's. It's a covenant. What's mine is yours. Unless there's what they call a prenuptial agreement, which says, um, what's mine is mine. Before, during, and probably after. And here's the deal. God doesn't have a prenuptial agreement. And God doesn't have a pre-adoptive agreement that says, what's mine is mine, and, and it doesn't get to be yours. You see, God in his agape, unconditional love says, in Christ, in Jesus, all spiritual blessing in heaven is now yours. It's my adopted daughter, my adopted son. It's all yours. And so back to the verses, we see that what we get in Christ. It's, it's, not, it's in Christ. It's not in good works. It's not in religious activity. It's only in Christ. We don't earn these things. He chose you in accordance with his will and pleasure. His will is his purpose. He intentionally chose you because of his purposes. And not, he didn't choose you begrudgingly. He chose you out of his pleasure. He delights in you. And this is amazing. It, it, Paul's painting a picture here of the nature of God. And my hope is that as we walk through Ephesians, we begin to see our picture of God expanded. As we are reminded of some old truths we've heard along the way, but as we awaken to some new truths and new horizons of just how big and bold and beautiful God is. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. And we look at God's glorious grace here. He, he adopted us intentionally. He delights over us. And what God does for you through Jesus and in Christ, it puts a spotlight on the center stage of the grace of God. And grace means it was given when we did not deserve it. It magnifies God's grace. And what about this grace? The verse says, the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us. The word for freely here in the Greek is actually, it means charity. And what it means in that sense, despite any of our experiences, it's, it's a gift freely bestowed without any expense or any burden to the one receiving. That he is given to you freely with no burden on you and no expense to you out of love because he delights. He has given he has freely given us in the one he loves. There it is, in the one he loves. Who's the one? It's Jesus. In Christ, circle that. Once again, his glorious grace is freely given to us in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace 
I mean, we're still speaking about Jesus here. It starts off in him, in Christ. Once again, circle it. In Christ, we have redemption. And redemption is one of my favorite themes of the Bible, that all that was lost or missing, that God restores and goes beyond. And right here in this context, the word means to liberate someone by payment of ransom. To liberate someone by a payment of ransom. That in Christ, you were set free. Because he paid the ransom. Now, now, what is this payment of ransom? What's the price tag for your soul? What's the, what's the cost for your salvation? It's right here in the verse. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. That our redemption, our payment of ransom, our liberation comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the simple message of the Bible. This is the gospel. That, that we needed a savior. That we, our soul, needed saving. And that God sent his son Jesus to die and resurrect so that we have a clear path to the Father. And in that, we get forgiveness of our past, peace in our present, and hope for our future. That God did great and glorious things in us and for us in Christ. Because of his sacrifice. Back to the verse. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, forgiveness of sins is given to those who have been redeemed by Jesus' sacrifice. It's been given. We need to stop here for a moment. Because there is often a huge disconnect between what we believe about forgiveness and how we behave about forgiveness. It's one of the biggest disconnects I see for those who claim to follow Jesus. You know, in Western church in in America, if I was going to poll everyone in America who claims to be a Christian, does Jesus forgive sins? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we learned that. We know that. If I was going to poll us here in this place, does Jesus forgive sins? Yes. Most of us would say yes, of course. If if you asked in your heart, uh, if I asked you, does Jesus forgive all your sins? Yeah, yeah, he does. This is known. And it's good to believe that because it lines up with God's word. But despite our professed belief, if we were somehow able to see a printout of our behavior, we would see that our our thinking and feeling and behaving lines up more with condemnation and guilt and shame. You see, we behave and feel more like unforgiven people more often than not. Most people are unaware of just how guilty they feel. We're unaware of the burden that we carry around with us. It's just part of the package. I just feel bad about things I'm doing or I've done. Or other people, they're keenly aware of the inner critic that says, how could you do that? Keenly aware of that voice that just condemns them. But it's there. A deep sense of failure knowing that what I've done and what I'm doing just isn't right somehow with, with this God thing. And if what Ephesians is saying true, if what Ephesians is saying is true, then we need to begin to behave, believe, think, and feel like beloved daughters and sons who have been ransomed through the blood of Jesus, forgiven and redeemed. If the Bible is, is true... If God is who he says he is, if Christ is who he says he is, then we need to begin to take him at his word and believe that we walk free of guilt and shame because he says so. See, I often have to fight through a bunch of guilt and shame. I have a file of evidence in my past that tells me how bad I am. And the accuser likes to take me to court 
and remind me of all those things. And I have to fight through the guilt. I fight through the shame to get back to a place where I go, okay, I'm going to behave like a, for, a forgiven son of God. And it's so hard sometimes. But it wasn't always hard. For those of you who claim to follow Jesus, do you remember when you first came to Christ? A summer camp or the vacation Bible school or in someone's house or in some church or whatever it was. Whenever it was. On November 18th of last year, my daughter Selah was four years old and we were driving into town. To um, We're on a daddy-daughter date. And she started asking me some spiritual questions about the Bible, about Jesus. And we, it's, it's something we talk about a lot in our house. But she had some questions about heaven and, and, and Jesus and forgiveness. And I recognized that this was a spiritual moment. And so I began to um, answer her questions, even ask her some questions. And God was obviously working on her and calling her heart. And she wanted to pray to receive Jesus as her Savior. And so I immediately said, hold on. And I called Amy. And I said, meet us at Pepino's parking lot. Because I knew she'd want to be a part of it. And so we, we both met there at Pepino's parking lot. And, and we gathered in, like, there in my truck. And we, we talked to Selah. And she wanted to pray to receive Jesus as her Savior. And right there at that moment, we prayed. Little four-year-old heart. And she received Jesus. And she said, like she goes, she's... I feel the joy explosion. Like you could, it was so amazing to watch a little girl's spirit explode in joy and to see it work its way through her emotion, her countenance, her thinking, her confidence, everything. She has been different since that day. And in that moment, to watch her complete being awaken to a new reality was amazing. Now she's four. All she knows is that she's going to heaven, that her sins are forgiven, that Jesus died and rose again for her, and that the Holy Spirit lives inside of her. She was overjoyed, laughing visibly and moved by this. And I have a video I took of her just a short while longer, that same day, within the hour, just a video of her, is, and you can, I hope you've seen her, I want you to see a childlike countenance who is unhindered by uh, the guilt and the shame, because she doesn't know any better. That's just her celebrating. That is the joy and the freedom that she feels on that day, ground zero of her salvation, just breaking through. And if you look, you'll see she's, she's unencumbered. There's no file of guilt and shame that she has to fight her way through. There's no lifetime of evidence that condemns her. She actually believes, she takes Jesus at his word that she's a beloved daughter and her sins are forgiven. She believes it. And you can see the freedom there. I watched that video and it challenges my heart because I, I, I miss that. I miss that freedom. I miss just taking Jesus at his word and going, I'm forgiven. Because there's a, like I said, there's a whole file. You see, my childlike belief that Jesus did what he said he did is buried beneath a lifetime of me messing it up. So I have to fight through the guilt and shame to even get back to just neutral on the freedom. This is why David, David's a, he was called the one after God's own heart in the Bible. And this, is, this was his prayer. He had just, he had messed it up royally and he was feeling the guilt and shame. And he said this, he said, oh, my God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And that's a real prayer. Down through the years, the joy of our salvation turns into indifference. 
the fire turns into just embers. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Does your heart dance with joy because you have reawakened to the reality that there's no condemnation? Do you live in that reality that there's no condemnation in Jesus? That that file of sin that the accuser brings to court, God throws it out of the court proceedings because Jesus already did the time for you? That no evidence is allowed, the case is closed, the price has been paid? In our spiritual life, we should feel a joy and freedom because based on what Ephesians is saying, if this sinks in, our souls should be able to dance unencumbered by guilt. This is why things like Ephesians are so important. This old truth, oh yeah, I know God forgives me, but we need to begin to behave that way. It will change how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see others. Let me read you this verse we just covered from the message version. It says, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood poured out on the cross, we are a free people. We're free of the penalties of, and punishments chalked up by all of our sins. We're forgiven and free of our sin. And we're not just barely free, we're abundantly free. Orchard, one thing that may need to plant itself deeply within your heart and soul in this series is there understanding once again that you are free. That because of Jesus, the sins of your past, they truly are forgiven. That because of Jesus, the file of evidence that declares you guilty is thrown out. Oh, but Pastor Daniel, you have no idea what I've done. And I would just say, you have no idea what God has done for you in Christ. And Ephesians declares repeatedly that in Christ, our identity is changed and transformed. And so in Ephesians, we want to begin to take God at his word. Jumping back into verse 8 and 9, with all wisdom and all understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure, he, which he purposed in Christ. There it is again. The mystery, I love that the Spirit led Paul to write this. He made known to us the mystery, that this mystery is hidden things. That, and there's mystery in the Bible, and there's mystery about God. But, but remember, God doesn't hide things from you. He hides things for you. And we have to remember there are mysteries. And the, first half, the, the people who wrote the first half of this book, they wrote it. And there were mysteries that became clear and revealed in the second half. And they would have longed to have seen them. And now we know them. They're familiar to us. But to generations of people, they long to know the mysteries that we look at. Now here it says, God made known the mystery of his will. That God has a will and a purpose for this world. God has a purpose for this church. And here's the, God has a purpose for you in your life. The purpose of God in your life might seem like a mystery, but it's clear that God wants you to know it so that you can fulfill it. The verse goes on to say that God made his mystery known because of his good pleasure. And man, we have such a, we have such a hard view of God sometimes. Oftentimes we view God as this scowling parent, just shaking his head. I can't believe you did it again. Oh, Really? Like just there's this scowl, there's this shake of the head. And it says here that he reveals things to us because he delights in us. What if the face of God toward you was a smile? 
That's his disposition toward you. Either it's true or it's not. So do we stand on what Ephesians says that he delights in us to show us his purpose? And of course he finishes it by saying all this is true in Christ once again. And the next verse picks up on this. The mysteries of God's purposes have been made known in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This verse is referring to two specific purposes of God. The first one is when Jesus died and resurrected, salvation was no longer just for one people group. That in Christ, all were called. All are invited, regardless of race and gender, location, status, or anything. And the second meaning is this, that at the right moment, all things, all mysteries will be revealed and brought to fulfillment in heaven and earth because Jesus is returning. And at that moment, all the mysteries we have about God in life will be revealed as we see him face to face. And he finishes this section by speaking directly to the people here in Ephesus. Because remember, they're first generation believers. They didn't go to Sunday school. They don't know the song, the B-I-B-L-E. They didn't have a B-I-B-L-E. They, they, they didn't know the thing. They didn't, have, they didn't know what flannel graph was. They didn't have church videos. They, none of it. This is the first generation of believers. And, and Paul says, in Jesus, there it is, in Christ, we were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of God who works out everything in conformity with his purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. This first generation of believers starting a legacy for, for many to come were chosen to put their hope in Christ. And he says this, and you were also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. The message of truth is the gospel of salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. You see, when a person comes to faith and belief in Jesus, they are marked with a seal. Now, a seal is something we don't really have any much context for these days. We know about, you know, the, the furry ocean seal and the Ziploc seal. But neither are what Paul is speaking about here. You see, in the ancient of days, a king would write a royal decree and once it was penned, it was his authority on paper. It was law wherever it went in his kingdom. And after the decree was completed, it was rolled up or folded, and they would put a dollop of wax there. We've seen this in movies, right? They put a dollop of wax there, and the king would, would use his signet ring with, with his seal, his signet on there, and he would press it into the wax. And he would put his symbol of power, his symbol of his kingdom, his throne and authority would go into that imprinting it. And when a person comes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit becomes the mark of God's kingdom on their life. The Holy Spirit is the seal that the contents within are from the king's authority and hand, and it's without contestation. So I might not feel forgiven, but there's a seal from authority of heaven that says otherwise. Listen to what 2 Corinthians says. It says, Now it is God who makes us stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This seal is a seal of ownership. As God says, this one right here, she's mine. She bears my mark, my spirit. And this seal of the Holy Spirit, 
It, it doesn't fade and it doesn't tarnish and no one can take it from you and sin can't smudge it because it's from the throne of heaven and his authority. But Paul finishes the section by saying this, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The seal of heaven Marking whose is God is a deposit. And the deposit is something that holds the promise until the future. The deposit guarantees an inheritance of those in Christ. And the inheritance is twofold. That we are adopted into the family of God as full sons and daughters. And number two, that we have an inheritance of eternal kingdom of heaven. So what does this mean? This, this, this flying through Ephesians, this one section. What does it mean here in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14? Well, first, I want you to get a sense of the incredible revelation of the purposes of God and all that he's done that before time and creation God knew you had a destiny for you and we learned that God works out his purposes for you and in you not begrudgingly but with delight and with love we learned that he loved us so much that he sent his own son to make a payment of ransom so that we could be in Christ and have these blessings and these blessings are amazing. These blessings in Christ, because of them, those who follow Jesus are transformed and signed, sealed, and delivered from sin. So I just want to look once again briefly at the blessings in Christ in just these first 14 verses. But I want to personalize them because this is from Ephesians, from the heart of God to you. This is true of you in Christ. For those who believe in Jesus, as God blessed you in every with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Even before the world existed, God loved you and chose you in Christ. God chose to adopt you into his family through Christ. In Christ, you have forgiveness of sins. God made known to you the mystery of his purposes in Christ. God is bringing all things to unity under Christ. In Jesus, you were chosen according to God's plan, for God's plan. In Christ, you are marked with the Holy Spirit, the seal of God's kingdom, as a deposit for an eternal inheritance. You see, when our, when our perspective of God is small, then we view ourselves in one of two ways. Either as insignificant or pridefully more than we are. But when the view of ourself is off, our world tells us, get a self-help book and kind of study yourself and go from there. But if you want to tr see your true self, your true calling, your true identity, your true destiny, to understand the calling that you have, it's to truly see who God is. It's not self-help. It's pursuing to see who he is, and in light of who he is, you will see yourself as you were truly created to be. The greatest thing you could ever do for your significance and confidence and all those things is to understand your significance in Christ. And in Ephesians, we're going we're to see this. In Ephesians, as we see God clearer, we're going to see ourselves clearer. We're going to see the unequaled majesty. We're going to see his unrivaled power, his unrelenting grace, and his unconditional love. In, in Ephesians, we're going to experience his unmerited favor, his, his unending forgiveness, and his unshakable peace that he grants us. Ephesians lets us marvel at the unearned blessings that he gives us, the unsurpassed salvation that he sealed on us, and then the unparalleled purpose that he called you to. This book we're going to study is not seven steps to a healthy Christian life. It's a book that comes 
that says, come to me. Come and taste. Taste and see that God is good. Come and experience and learn and see the awesome character and virtue. Come see the heart of God. The very God that had you in mind before he created the earth. Because the truth is, you were known before you breathed your first breath. You were loved before you were ever alive. And you were bought at a great price before you even knew you needed saving. The payment for our ransom is paid in full in Christ. And for those in Christ, we are emblazoned and marked and imprinted by the Holy Spirit. I want to call you to fully dive into this Ephesians series. You can tell it's, it's, it's heady stuff. It's, it's deep stuff. But this can transform us. Our, our, our themes for the year, Orchard, are bold decisions and deeper roots. And so I want us to pursue God in this book and, and see what it would say about him and about us. And not because we should do it, but because we want to see him more clearly. Here's step one. Step one to the Ephesians series. If you're in here and you've heard all these things that are in Christ that God has done for you, and yet you don't know if you are in Christ, I'm not going to belabor this point, but if you would like to pray to receive Jesus as your Savior, to be in Christ, then we're going to do it simply. We're all going to bow our heads, and if you would like to do so, you're going to pray a prayer. The Bible says, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus died and rose again, and you're saved. And so if you would like to pray that with me for the first time today and be in Christ, we're all, let's all bow our heads. And, and Orchard, let's all pray. Just repeat after me. Jesus, I need you. I know you died. I know you rose again. I want to be in Christ. I gave you my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And for all of us, I would like to challenge us to do something for this series. I want to, here's your mission if you choose to accept it. I want you to reread Ephesians 1 every day this week. Just one. Don't skip ahead. Don't see what's coming next because we're going to go on Ephesians. We're going to continue on Ephesians 1 next week. And I want you to pray. I want you to read Ephesians 1 every day this week. And before you read it, I want, Elijah and I, my son, we have a little prayer we say anytime before we read the Bible. We read every night. We say this. We say, Holy Spirit, reveal truth to me. When you, whenever you read the Bible, pray that prayer that the Holy Spirit would show you fresh revelation and so that you can show up here next week because there's something in next week's text here in Ephesians 1 that we didn't get to that will blow your mind and soul and heart. It's incredible. And so as we, as we continue through Ephesians, let's, let's be people who put deep roots down into God's word and become familiar with it. And as we close today, there's a prayer team in the back. If you have any prayers today, big, small, whatever it would be, we have a prayer team that wants to pray for your blessing or your healing, whatever. And as we go into communion, I want to remind you that communion here at the orchard is open to any who would want to come take it in remembrance of Jesus. But we don't do it lightly. It's not just a snack after the message for your blood sugar. Like, this is the remembrance that, that there was a price. When it says redemption, a payment for liberation, well, the payment was Jesus' body and blood. And so maybe as you come and get the symbols for those and sit down, just thank him once again for all the things that are true in Christ. Amen? Let's worship.